My mother had two catchphrases, which were always have your running away money. And if you're not part of the revenue, you're not part of the decision making. And that was her way of saying to me, a man is not a plan. Go and be self-actualizing. Do what you want to do for yourself and be in control. And that kind of permeated me on a very deep level. Sonia Lennon's website tells us she's a designer, businesswoman and advocate for equality and that she has successfully repositioned from fashion girl to broadcaster to social entrepreneur. She's a political campaigner on the gender pay gap issue and is an advisor to numerous companies on improving the lives of their workers. Sonia Lennon, you're very welcome to the Insights Podcast. Thank you, Sean. You've had, as I say, a remarkable career from the start when you got, I think you started folding jumpers in Blarney Woolen Mills <laughs> at the age of 17. Somebody's done their research, you, Sean. You, they're very good around here. You, you worked as a high-class stylist for many years and then you became a household name on the RTE fashion show Off the Rails with Brendan Courtney. And I was just thinking last night, Sonia, that when it came to RTE looking for a new presenter for the Late Late Show, you might have been on the list of potential candidates. Uh, now, I know you took some persuading to get into broadcasting in the first place, but would something like the Late Late have appealed to you? No. <laughs> in a word, Sean. And, and you know, a couple of people have said it to me. I, look, I, I don't think for one second that I was in, in the mix, but I think... Um, something like that would be such a massive commitment and I have a lot of things to do and a lot that I want to achieve and I think to, to commit to something that enormous would, would not be an option and I, I don't think it's where I'm supposed to be at the moment either. Right, but you did and this is unusual I think. Uh, a lot of people would, would give their eye teeth to become a broadcaster in whatever way but you took a lot of persuading uh, to, to join the Off The Rails team. I did for a couple of reasons. I suppose firstly because I had notions about myself and I thought I was in in a different realm I was I was doing high end fashion shooting all over the world commercials fashion campaigns and I, honestly, I thought makeovers were beneath me. I, I thought I was better than that. Um, and the other piece was that I had a beautiful stable of clients who I'd built up over 20 years. I was very well paid for the work that I did. I enjoyed it very much. And and for me to say yes to Off the Rails at the time was a huge risk. I, I was risking losing all of that. And having said that, it was that was a gift to me because it really was the first time in my career where I challenged myself to take a risk and and to do something that required courage. And I think that that was really a big inflection point in my career. And the other thing was that you became not just a colleague, but a, a very good friend and then subsequently business partner with your co-presenter, Brendan Courtney, which led on then to setting up Lennon Courtney. There's almost shades of Lennon McCartney there. Oh, <laughs> we know. <laughs> Nothing uh, by accident, Sean. Uh, and um, as opposed to if you were to do it alphabetically, it would have been Courtney Lennon. But in any event, uh, Lennon Courtney has a certain ring to it. It does. And you know, there's a story behind that because we, we kind of said, is it is it Courtney Lennon or is it Lennon? and Courtney and, and we said Courtney Lennon sounds like sort of a mixed race child of a movie star and a rock star uh, whereas Lennon Courtney sounds like a brand and it was really just about the sound of the words and the fact that it slightly sounded like Lennon McCartney it wasn't lost on us. <laughs> so how did that develop and what kind of businesses grew out of it? Oh I mean 
looking back, we were so green around the gills. We didn't know what we were doing. We learned in the trenches. We made so many mistakes. We started out as an independent fashion brand. We got into various sort of partnerships with middlemen and manufacturers and we really hustled to make it work for the first three years. And by some definitions, we were very successful. The order book was growing you know, by 25% every season. We were in 30 boutiques. We were stocked in London. We were stocked in Harvey Nichols. We were covered in Vogue, the first day of London Fashion Week, LUS. So yeah, hugely successful, except that the model was eating itself and we were making no money. And in fact, we were subsidising the business. So we had to kind of take a long, hard look at how we could make a success out of a brand that was, you know, gaining attention, was loved, but we couldn't make it work. Was it all about women's fashion? Yeah. And then you got this partnership going with Dunn Stores. Was that a big, important breakthrough? That was massive because we we were really looking down the barrel of the gun at that stage and saying, you know, the cash flow crises every time we go to manufacture, we couldn't make it work. And we knew we needed a partnership model. And we approached Dunn Stores and they saw value in what we were doing. It was something that they weren't doing in store. So it was kind of opening up that new niche for you know, really smart, attractive clothes for professional women. And yeah, we we entered into a really amazing seven year partnership with them where they helped us to democratise the brand as well because we cut out the wholesale margin. Um, so it was straight to consumer. So, so there was lots of kind of fundamental business decisions that made it a, a more attractive thing. And now you're about to uh, partner or have started a partnership with uh, Kilkenny Design with Lennon Courtney. How difficult was it or was it a surprise that, uh, you know, you've parted company with Dunn's? It was a really tough decision, Sean, to be honest with you. For because them or for you? For us. Yeah, for us, it was, you know, we they, they had really supported us. They had been both business partners in the growth of Lennon Courtney and also friends as as humans. So so all of that is tricky. But we really believe in Lennon Courtney and we believe it is an international proposition. We believe it has what it takes to to export um, into new markets. And that just wasn't a vehicle that was available to us within Duns. So you decided to leave them as opposed to the other way around? Yeah. And uh, had, the, had the Kilkenny design arrangement been pretty much set up before you did that or when you did that? No, we knew it, it, we weren't in the right place and we knew we needed space to, to find the right opportunity. We had been approached by companies in the UK. We knew that there were going to be options. And then really it was just a chance encounter with Evelyn Moynihan, the CEO of Kilkenny at an event. And, you know, we just we just said we 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 have so much ambition for this brand. We want it to grow. And her eyes lit up and she was like, let's talk. And and it was one of those things I think it's when you're in the trenches and you're 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 just going really hard at something, you're in a way inhibiting the opportunity to look beyond it and see what's possible. And that's why we felt we needed to walk away. And then there was Frock Advisor. That was a, a tech venture that it, it attracted, a, attracted a fair amount of investment, but it didn't work out in the end. Ah, Frock Advisor. <laughs> Frock Advisor was, uh, yeah, that was the MBA really in action. We had a really good idea 
to set up, I suppose initially it was a kind of a content platform. And and in a way, if we'd stuck to our guns and, and done that, it would have been a different story. But sure, who knows? But instead, we kind of got sucked into the startup ecosystem, if you like. And we ended up sort of moulding ourselves to the needs of that system to create an app. Now, we created a beautiful piece of technology, which was bringing together independent boutiques and boutique shoppers to buy. And we created a really lovely one touch buy it now solution before Instagram had even thought about it. Um, But I think we were too early. I think we were too early and it just, it, it didn't work for a number of reasons that I could bore you with. Um, but that's OK. How how hard was it though to face the idea, look, this is not working, we're going to have to shut it down and people are going to lose jobs. Was it about, what, 17 people yeah. in the end? It was brutal. There's, there's no way to sugarcoat it. You know, it was another, I suppose it was the second big risk that I'd taken. Well, look, there was, there, there was other risks along the way, um, but... It was. And also you give yourself heart and soul to something for five years trying to make it work and believing it. Like we wouldn't have done it if we didn't believe it was a good idea with a positive impact and the potential to make a lot of money um, for our investors. We really did believe that. And then when it didn't work, I suppose one of the biggest learnings for me, I suppose, is when this stuff happens, this really challenging stuff happens, there is the experience of it itself and then there's the emotional response to it. And it's the emotional response that kills you, not the experience itself. So you you, you kind of have to give yourself time to dust yourself off and be analytical about what actually happened and where you can pull the learnings out of it to not make the same mistake again. That's, you know... That's that's it. You've spoken before about uh, being on the verge of of burnout, which I presume is close enough to having a breakdown. I mean, was it to do with with Proc Advisor? Yeah, it, it was. And I'm I'm kind of surprised I didn't do more damage than I actually did. Looking back, sleepless nights, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was I was obsessed. I I wanted I wanted it to work. We both wanted it to work, and and it's. It, it takes so much out of you. And and basically, when you're in that startup world and you're trying to raise finance to keep the ship afloat while also trying to do a full-time job of making the business work. So you're doing two full-time jobs. And and the, definitely there were casualties there. There were people who I had no time for. And, and looking back, that just seems very very harsh I suppose and but remember we had two businesses three businesses on the go I had set up Dress for Success which is now Work Equal that was going Frock Advisor service tech SaaS company Len and Courtney a, a brutalised fashion brand that wasn't paying for itself so I, I had three really dodgy lame dogs on the go at the one time it's not really any surprise I was having sleepless nights Not all plain sailing you mentioned Dress for Success which is now as you say called Work Equal just explain the thinking behind that So when you will remember at the beginning of this interview, I said I felt that makeovers were beneath me, right? I was a high-end fashion stylist and, and that was that. And as I saw the democratisation of that skill set moving into off the rails, helping women and some men to feel better about themselves, to feel equipped for the world through the armour of clothing, I thought, well, OK, this is actually really good stuff because this is impacting human lives. N- not to be overly earnest about it, but we could see people benefiting from this process. And I thought, well, how can we how can we take this process and further democratize it, make it accessible to more people? And when I read about Dress for Success, whose mission is to support women towards economic independence by giving them the, the tools and the clothing that they need to succeed at interview, I thought, well, that's it. 
let's do it. Let's let's create a sort of a niche recycling circular economy piece where we can take clothing from women who no longer need it and, and niche recycle it to the women who, who needed to present at interview and give the, them the confidence to, to be the best version of themselves at interview to get the job and thereafter support them through programmes like mentoring, financial literacy and continuing development with a network of people who all want the best for each other. So it's not just about appearance, it's about much more than that in prepping and in helping people to follow through on their approach to getting new jobs. Yeah, it really is. And I suppose the unique selling point of Work Equal is the, you know, the, the clothing piece, but it's really the bit above the, the waterline that you can see. So how does it operate? Because it is a free service to people. Yeah. So actually, thank you for asking that, Sean. We're, we're actually on a mission at the moment to unlock statutory funding. So if Minister Heather Humphreys is, is listening, we're, we're, I'm on my way to you right now. <laughs> so we, we do deliver the service for free and we, we deliver into referral agents, agencies that are funded by the government to help people to secure employment. So we're this kind of um, finishing school for employability and and, and uh, employment readiness. So we are now through a, a, a partnership, strategic partnership that we've developed with Primark, we're delivering that service nationwide. Getting to thousands and thousands of, thousands of people who can't break through the barriers into employment. And you might say, well, you know, we're at full employment, quote unquote, in this country at the moment. So what are you talking about? Well, actually, there's huge swathes of marginalised and underrepresented groups and communities who can't access employment. And our job is to make sure that we're creating pathways for social mobility and and. And, and getting those people into the jobs that so they how deserve. So how do people, um, mainly women, some men I gather, how do they engage with you? How do they connect with you and, and benefit or use your services? Very simply, they can contact the boutique, which is on Ellis Key, info at workequal.ie. Uh, or they can go to, you know, if they're involved in a, in a in any organisation that uh, promotes training and education towards employment, they can ask to be referred to our service. So it's either through a referral agency or it's direct and I think that's the joy now of the work that we're doing with Primark is that we can go direct to people. So if you're listening and you need support to, to get that job or you know somebody who needs support just just come to us. That's fine if you're in Dublin Sonia. What if you're in Cahar Savine? Yeah, so we, we've delivered, I suppose, over over COVID, we really fine-tuned an online service um, and we can deliver clothing packages. We can do a styling session and a HR session online. There's absolutely no problem. And I suppose, again, to go back to the Primark partnership, that is about getting out into the regions, getting all over the island of Ireland through a partnership with them. And is it intended or hoped that you would be able to have physical centres, walk-in places uh, in different parts in the regions? Absolutely. So the the next stop is Cork because there had been a dress for success, nothing to do with us, but another office in in Cork and we want to plug that gap because we know the need is there. But we also know the need is there in Waterford and Galway and Limerick. Um, So we need to create access points so that everybody can reach us. Aside from giving people the confidence that, that comes with looking well and dressing appropriately, are there needs as well, maybe for women mostly, because you hear that, you know, a woman will be slow to apply for a job if she feels that she doesn't meet all the requirements, whereas a man, if he meets two out of five, he'll be in there. Yeah, there are needs. And I one of my fav- favourite kind of concepts is that we need to give people permission to succeed. So a lot of the communities that we would work with, um, the individual themselves hasn't given themselves permission to succeed, but also their communities aren't giving them permission. So we see that a lot. You know, 
where there is perhaps, you know, endemic unemployment, um, you're not really encouraged to better yourself. And we want to really challenge that notion and challenge it from two sides, from the individual side, but also from the employer's side. Employers are, you know, blue in the face saying they can't find talent. And yet there are really talented people out there. But but there are hidden barriers to those people actually being landed in jobs. They could be technological barriers. They could be unconscious bias. We need to really rattle that cage a little bit and see how we can help to create those pathways. Which brings us to another uh, string to your bow, as it were. You, you work with firms, some of the big uh, names and the big brands. And you go in there, as I read recently, to if you like, uh, drop friendly death charges. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what's that all about? I see part of my role in advocating for equitable workplaces as shaking the thinking because I, I truly believe that where we find ourselves right now is not the product of malicious intent. It's just that we've always done stuff in this certain way. So we need to kind of shake up what we thought we knew. And, you know, I went back during COVID and did a master's in business equity, diversity and inclusion, I suppose, to validate what I thought I knew and to learn more about what gold standard looks like. How can we create workplaces where people, regardless of identity, feel like they belong and that they have value because we spend so long in work and and the workplace is a little bit broken, you know, for most people. Um, Very few, if any, companies have got it 100% right. And I think one of the things that I see is that the conversation around equitable workplaces, belonging, diversity, whatever you want to call it, tends to start at the middle of an organisation and travel up and back down to the middle. The lower rungs of an organisation are pretty much immune to that. Like, And actually, if that's where the biggest mass of people live, at the bottom of an organisation, we kind of have a responsibility to ensure that they are also heard and valued and and feel like they belong in an organisation. And to be honest, with the new European reporting that's coming down the line, these are issues that we're going to have to get our teeth stuck into anyway. When did you branch into our... When, when did I turn into Arthur Scargill? Is that what you want no, to ask no, me? Yeah. No, I, 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 I suspect you're not quite an Arthur Scargill. You might be <laughs> Arthur quite. Scargill on the, on, the, on the side of capitalism maybe. But in any event, like you had, a, as you say, a highly successful business in styling and clothing and all the rest of it. But the other thing is more political as much as anything else. It's um, it's It's got to do with organisations and organisational change. I mean, what drew you into that and when did it happen? So to start with, my mother had two catchphrases, which were always have your running away money. And if you're not part of the revenue, you're not part of the decision making. And that was her way of saying to me, a man is not a plan. Go and be self-actualizing. Do what you want to do for yourself and be in control. Mm. And that kind of permeated me on a very deep level. And I think I absolutely acknowledge the privilege that I was brought up with, both in terms of financial and also emotional. Um, you know, my my family continue to be amazing. We're very, very close, very supportive. And even though I took a kind of a strange squiggly path, there was never any problem with me making my own decisions. But that is not available to, to everybody. And I think, you know, I've said it already, this idea that you would continue to democratise whatever impact you can create and make it wider and yeah, wider and wider. Yeah, but that's a campaigning thing because you've been working with politicians as well. I'm just wondering... Wh- yeah, what- but it's about people at the end of the day. Absolutely. It's, and it's about social impact more than it is about politics. But 
if you're to get change, you've got to influence politicians. And I mean, you yourself have been working with cross-party groups, whether it's childcare or creating the conditions for people to make the most of their, their work opportunities or indeed to deal with uh, the gender pay gap. Yeah, you, you absolutely do have to include and, and influence political decision-making and senior business decision-making. But this change percolates from from public will from the ground up and so research that we've done with Work Equal we saw that 74% of the population male and female want to see closing the gender pay gap as a priority of business and government that's massive that's three quarters of the population see this as an issue so going back to the concept of permission we now have to create the tools and the permission to let those people action that way What I was wondering is Sonia when did you latch on (laughs) to this as something yeah I have a contribution to make here and I'm going to push this? I think really actually it goes back to RTE and when all of a sudden tipping 40 I had a public profile and a voice I felt a responsibility to use that Um, and that's so Dress for Success Now Work Equal was the first organisation that I built and in in a way there was a kind of a safety in building a non-profit I thought because you know well it's less expectation around its its performance and delivery than there would be for a for-profit and I didn't have the confidence at that stage so Work Equal gave me the confidence to go forward And just before we leave Work Equal what is the success rate of the people who come to you and whom you help? It's huge so 7 out of 10 people get the job 9 out of 10 of the people that we mentor are in employment a year after a mentorship it's extraordinary it, it what we do and works would you, would it be mainly people who are unemployed when they come to you that you work with or would you get people who feel like they're they're capable of more than what they're doing at the moment? Primarily people who are unemployed um, but we do have a policy of not refusing anybody and that's really where where it came to pass that we were serving men as well because we're called work equal we can't turn anybody away. <laughs> and what about women who maybe have taken some years out to help rear their children and want to get back into, into the workplace? Would they be an important strand yeah, of those? That's a massive cohort for us because you know, as anybody who's who's been kind of displaced from their from their normality knows, it's very hard to climb back up, um, and and it takes a little bit of expertise, skill, and kindness to get somebody there. You mentioned family, and uh, it sounds like you had a fantastic upbringing. A mother who worked in one of those glamour jobs, I think it's yeah. fair to say, yeah. air hostess. That's what they were called. I think they're called stewards now, and. Your dad, a bank manager, but a real kind of a can-do individual, still is by all yeah. accounts. Oh, he's amazing. I mean, he's an icon for positive ageing. He's 85. Um, he, he took myself and my sister to India this year. We got him into a wetsuit for the first time in his life. He went at snorkeling at 85. Yeah, he's something else. And, and he's like, I know why he is the way he is and it's attitude it's curiosity, it's openness, um, it's all that good stuff that we need to double down on as leaders. India? Yeah. At the age of 85? Not a bother on him. And what other ventures has he embarked on then? Oh, he's, he's, he's incredible. He meditates every day. I mean, this is a man who's a bank manager in Malahide, you know? It's like kind of cookie cutter, middle class, you know? And and he is, ju- he's constantly reading, constantly learning, constantly challenging himself. He's he's amazing. Your mum sadly is in full-time care in a nursing home now. She is, yeah. She has dementia. And that obviously 
is a severely limiting condition. And your dad minded her for a long time, but eventually had to let the full-time carers take over. Yeah, we we said to him on the last Christmas, he said, we're going to buy you a white flag for Christmas and uh, you just wave it because it's the, it is literally the hardest thing. You ha- it's not the hardest thing, but it's one of the hardest things a family has to do is to is to acknowledge that somebody needs full-time care because there's a sense of letting somebody down, letting somebody down who you love by 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 sending them away from the family home. But actually, I am uh, an advocate for for positive dementia care and 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 there have been huge positives in mum getting the care that she needs. She's happier. She's socialised. Um, she's she she's secure, and that has been really good for us as a family. And presumably, you're able to visit her. Oh yeah. Even though she mightn't be you know, able to recognise everybody. Well, she still does. She has had dementia for about the last 16 years, which is a very, very long time. But she still lights up when she sees my dad. Um, So, yeah, she's still flirting. (laughs) With dementia. One can flirt with dementia. (laughs) Good for her. And the good times, though, must have been very good when you were growing up, Sonia, because... Presumably there were flights to exotic places, you know, with the, was it a 10% uh, fare in, oh, in those yeah. days? You were able to take full yeah. advantage of all that. Yeah, we had some good trips. We had some good trips. Um, I remember going to the States for a month when I was about 14 or 15, uh, touring California and down into Mexico all the way down. And like, that was just phenomenal at that time. You know, people didn't do that sort of stuff. So we went on a road trip, the four of us. Um, and yeah, great memories. And as you say, they gave you great freedom, uh, your parents did, but they might have been a little taken aback when you decided not to go from secondary school to college. Disgusted is the word, Sean. They weren't taken aback, they were disgusted with me because my dad had gone straight into the bank. My mum had uh, like done a secretarial course and um, started off as a legal secretary. So, you know, as the eldest, I was the great white hope. I was going to, you know, go to university and, and do all that good stuff that they that wasn't available to them. Um, but unfortunately, she had indoctrinated me a little bit too uh, too well and I just wanted to earn and learn on the job. I'm very practical. I'm very pragmatic. Um, I just wanted to start doing. And so I went to work. What drew you to the fashion side of things? I had always, it was always there. Like I have notebooks at home from when I was nine and ten with fashion sketches in it. Uh, And I wanted to be a fashion designer. I wanted to go to NCD and study fashion design when I left school. My parents as supportive as they were, said, really, do you want to do that? You know, the chances of you succeeding in that arena are very slim. And, you know, we think you should look at other options. And then, as it happened, there was a horrendous tragedy on the year that I left school in 1986. Um, I went to Loretto on the Green and uh, there was a horrific fire. Six nuns lost their lives, which was the, the... the main horrendous tragedy. Um, but a, a symptom of that was that the art room was destroyed and my portfolio was destroyed and everybody else in my year. So I had nothing to apply to college with. So that, I probably would have gone ahead and done it, but I had not I had nothing to show for it. So yeah, from that point on, the, the career took a, a slightly unexpected turn. So you were in retail for how long? I think I was in retail for about five years. Um, while styling, while kind of earning my stripes as a, as a fashion stylist. So I, I would work every day. So I'd work on the shop floor selling high-end designer goods and then I'd shoot at the weekends, during holidays, at night, whenever I could. I'd be putting a band of people together and creating a portfolio of work. And then it just became untenable. I had to make a decision to go. 
What kind of clientele did you build up for yourself? Because this was one of the reasons you were hesitant about going into work uh, with RT on Off The Rails. So I suppose different types. So music acts, um, TV commercials. I was I was working at a time when, you know, the advertising industry was in its absolute golden age. I, I was making ads with production companies with huge budgets, you know, going with a, a very extensive shopping budget over to London to buy clothes for 120 models for Carlsberg ads and like it was it was crazy times it was crazy times and and it was it was very lucrative and and great fun that's what I didn't want to let go of I didn't want to let go of that revenue and that's that it was never secure because it was always a little bit tenuous because you're a freelancer but I'd worked really hard to build those relationships and and for me it's always down to relationships at the end of the day do you still do any of that work no uh, well, I, I do. I have one client in Switzerland who I who I work with on global campaigns, and and they're just so nice, and the the terms and conditions are so lovely that I can't let it go. Plus, I get to sleep on a big white bed on my own in a five star hotel and do that for a few days every every quarter. That's very nice too. What's not to like about that? <laughs> now, coming back to the gender pay gap, which is not to be confused with equal pay, and there is so much confusion out there. And it's it's one of the things that we've called for the government to create an awareness campaign around it because we're we're you know we're well into the gender pay gap reporting um, legislation at this stage, but it's still not it's not fully fitted. Okay, just explain the concept then. Okay, so a lot of people think about think about it in terms of equal pay. So equal pay is equal pay for equal work, and that was enshrined in European law in 1974. So. Legally, you're not allowed to pay two people a different amount for doing the same job. But the gender pay gap is much more of a macro uh, understanding of where women and men have earning potential. So if you take, again, this you know pyramid of an organisation and you, you chop it into three, the top, the middle and the bottom, where are the genders gathering? Where is the earning potential? Um, and, and unfortunately, a lot of women tend to congregate in low paid precarious work because of childcare issues. And so because traditionally leadership tables have been all male, I mean obviously, you know, that's that's the big march with the 30% club is to get women into leadership. But we also need to look at it as a as a pipeline as a whole and see where are the entry points and where are the, the blockages for women to progress to seats of decision making. And that's what it's about because I don't think it's good that a table full of men make a decision for a population that is 51% female. I don't think that's, I, I don't think men can get into the head of women and understand their needs because they are different. But is it not the, the case that you now have requirements, for instance, you know, the government is using its influence because and its checkbook um, or money transfer system organisations which it helps have to have at least 40% male, 40% female at board level and so forth. I mean, isn't that the way to go? It's a start. I would nearly say that it's more important for representation at the senior executive <laughs> level because that's that's the engine of the organisation. And, and I just don't think you can stop at one particular point and say we've done this and that's enough. And unfortunately, there are organisations out there who have done that and said, OK, we've done it. We've created gender representation on our board. It's fine. Let's keep going. But it's not enough. So, so it, meanwhile, the, secret, the, the senior management in the company might be 95% exactly. male. Exactly. 
So what what is the cause of that? I mean, is it... It's legacy, Sean. Is it unconscious bias as well? Yeah, and I think it's not... I'm really always at pains to say none of this is malicious intent. This is just the way things always happened. And, And so we really have to challenge ourselves to say, well... Just because it always happened that way, does that mean it's the best way? Um, So I was having a conversation with a friend of mine recently who works in financial services and she said, you know, there's a lot of arms around shoulders and, and sort of gently sweeping people up to the top table. But it tends to be men doing that to men. Do you think women are good at doing it for women? There are, there's research on this and it's not pretty, right? So I think that... It's a really interesting point. There was research done on the on the US police force and women's representation in senior leadership there. And it showed that there, there were very few women in senior leadership. And when a woman got there, she closed ranks and she didn't... Pull put, the ladder up she, behind she her. She pulled the ladder up. But, but listen, the, the reason that that's important is because if you are a minority, you're fighting for your own right to exist in that space. Where it becomes more tenable is where there is representation. So if there were two two or more women in that group, there would be a collegiality around that. And that's what the research shows. So we we need to move towards beyond tokenism and into true representation. But why would, what's the mentality that would explain why a woman who breaks through the the glass ceiling wouldn't want to bring others up as well? Because if she's on her own, she doesn't want to draw attention to her femaleness. She wants she wants to kind of be there. She wants to be there, but she 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 probably is exhibiting male leadership traits to fit in with a crowd. You know the way teenagers act. They they don't want to be different. They want to be the same. So if you're one person of difference in a larger group, you will you will fit into the status quo and you will act as the status quo. So gender the the gender pay gap is essentially comparing the average salaries across the company and breaking it down along gender lines. Exactly. And you're never, or are you ever going to see equality there? Well, it, it's possible. It's possible. I mean, you look at... Uh, the, I, I mean, to, to take an example, say in a school uh, where theoretically you might have 50% male, 50% female teachers, uh, equal pay, equal salary, no issue about that. But then when you take into account, for instance, that the, the SNAs, the special needs assistants, they're generally speaking all female. So that's going to tilt the balance again and show a gender pay gap in favour of the men. So I think the one thing that we need to be mindful of is we're never going to get to the point where every single sector has equity and equality. Never going to do that because there's always going to be a challenge with male dominated sectors and female dominated sectors. And it's still recognised as an issue, even in Iceland, which is the most equal country in the world for the last 10 years. They still have a problem with those gender segregated um, sectors. So that, that's unfortunately the way it is. But what we can do is change access points, change perceptions, change our social norms around what women do and what men do. And and what we can also do is look at our kind of socioeconomic landscape as a whole and say, are we providing access and, and, and acceptability for men and women to enter into realms that should be gender equal? The other venture that you're involved in, Sonia, is Lift Ireland. That's another part of social entrepreneurship. Yeah, so Lift Ireland, Lift stands for Leading Ireland's Future Together. And it is a roundtable programme of self-reflection, really, on how we can lead ourselves better, because all leadership starts inside. 
Right. So we have to lead ourselves before we lead anybody else. And we all lead ourselves. So there is a kind of a misconception that leadership is positional, that it is the CEO here or the DG there. We all lead ourselves every single day. And so we went out to uh, two omnibus surveys, surveyed the people of Ireland and asked what characteristics of leadership could be improved to, to make Ireland a better led country. And they came back with things like respect, listening, accountability, determination, competence, uh, empathy and understanding, honesty and integrity, really foundational, the good stuff. You know, we don't have a mechanism for, for sharing that learning as a nation other than lift at the moment. And so we have seen 60,000 people go through that process with a 91% success rate in terms of behavioural change. This this stuff works. So How does that happen? What, what do you do? So what you actually do is there's a number of levels at which you can engage. If, if you're listening to this interview and you like the sound of it, you can go on to liftireland.ie and book into a virtual roundtable. They're real people, but it's online um, and you, you can experience it. It takes 30 to 40 minutes each week a theme is addressed so it could be listening it could be honesty and integrity and you read a a set of materials around what it is to really listen Um, you could be in a group with about five people you reflect on the bits of the material that stand out to you that resonate with you you share that with the group and then you you take a few moments to self-reflect about your own behaviours around that value in the last 24 to 48 hours Um, and when we think you know Sean, you might say, well, I'm, I'm a broadcaster, I'm an interviewer, I'm a really good listener. But if you were asked to think about how well you listened in the last 24 hours to the people outside of the studio, you might kind of think, well, I could maybe do a little bit better. Maybe I shut down and I didn't, you know, give the person the time to, to be heard. That's I don't know whether that's true or not, Sean. That's only for you to say. But um, And then uh, there's a set of questions that we uh, reflect on. And, and we set an action. So in the, in the week ahead, I'm going to commit to this action to improve my level of, le- of listening. You finally did get to college, uh, as you I mentioned. I did. <laughs> uh, that was during lockdown. Was it all done virtually? You did this uh, master's in uh, equality, diversity and inclusion. Yeah, most of it was online. And myself and Brandon actually did it together, which was great fun. So that was like a kind of a, an accountability group to make sure we got through. Yeah, most of it was online. And towards the end, then we had a couple of, of uh, in-person sessions. It was fabulous. I mean, the zeal of the late starter, Sean, you know, it was like I was top nerd. Loved it. Did it give you an interest in maybe getting onto a campus to do more? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't the campus. It was the learning. So I don't mind what what form that takes. But yeah, I I don't think I'm finished. I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. And going back to that curiosity that my dad has modelled so well, you know, that that's just keep feeding that. You've got twins. I think they're just about on the uh, threshold of adulthood now, 18 years of age, Uh Boy and a girl. How did that, how has that worked for you? I thought you were going to say, how did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think I might have a fair idea. (laughs) We've had a few ourselves, not twins, uh, Irish twins. Um, But in any event, uh, just in regard to any difficulties or issues that might have arisen in their lives, just, I mean, clearly equality is something that, uh, you know, it's there woven into your life and approach to, to everything pretty much. Look, you know, when when I think Evie got her ears pierced when she was about seven and Finn said to me, can I get my ears pierced? 
And I said, no. <laughs> and he said, why? That's not very equal, is it? <laughs> and I was like, okay, you're absolutely right. It's not. Now, they do a lot of yanking my chain and, and calling me out and uh, making fun of me in a very lighthearted way. And when I said to him, well, okay, if you want to do it, you can do it. He didn't want to do it, right? But I think it's an interesting point. So when you are coming from a, a culture, a domestic culture, where this is in discussion all the time, it does make you think about things in a different way. And that's a good thing. And there was an issue that arose, I think you've spoken and perhaps written about this as well, uh, when your daughter needed to go on a certain kind of medication. Yeah, so she's on Roaccutane, which she's, she's almost finished now, thankfully. Um, it's a very, very tough medication. And in order to take it, you have to pledge to, um, I think, abstain from, from any sexual activity or double protect yourself with contraception. Because I think that the side effects, if, if you do become pregnant or so, horrendous and uh, so as a consequence she has to present a, a pregnancy test negative pregnancy test to get her prescription every month and she encountered I suppose she had been encountering judgment from customers whenever she went like she'd go in her school uniform I'd be in the car outside she'd go in to get the pregnancy tests and people would be kind of you know making comments rolling their eyes looking at her and she she's really she's a pretty strong-willed human and she, she'd always say oh no you surprise know. there yeah <laughs> But then one day it was the the person behind the counter who who made a judgment and kind of gestured to the colleague to say, "Look at your one buying a pregnancy test in her in her school uniform." And Evie came out and she said, "Okay, that's it now. I can take it from the customers. I can't take it from the staff." And uh, I I went back in and I said. I, went, I think it wasn't the same day. I didn't go straight in. We went and got the medication. I went in to get the, the prescription filled. And I said, look, can I have a chat with you? I just want to talk about, my daughter was in the other day. She she felt very judged. Um, I don't think it's fair because I think anybody buying a pregnancy test, man or woman, is doing it for the right reasons. Whether you want to be pregnant or whether you don't want to be pregnant, getting a pregnancy test is a positive action. And, I, and you don't know people's circumstances and I would ask you not to judge and I'd ask you to share that with your colleagues and just think about it before you make judgments on your customers. And so she said, absolutely. And and I wrote a LinkedIn post and it just exploded. And I think people really t- touched it on a, c- a couple of different levels. First of all, the judgment that women face around their bodies all the time. Secondly, the kind of parenting piece and the empowerment piece and me letting her go in and do that um, was viewed quite positively, I think, because I think that we 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 tend to shield our children <laughs> in a way that isn't always helpful. I think it's really important to go through these life experiences. And the other piece, I suppose, is 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 not to go in emotionally and angry into that situation and to deal with it on a human level and to to to, to ask people to question their their behaviours rather than castigate them for it. Finally, you have, I think, recently uh, become what's called a second life mentor with uh, an insurance company, Standard Life. Um, what's that about? I mean, you're a long way from retirement. and uh, Well, that- uh, you know, yes and no, Sean. Like, I- I'm officially 10 years away from retirement. Am I ever going to retire? Probably not. I love what I do. Um, I want to stay engaged until I keel over. Um but I think it's a it's a continuum for me around uh, 
creating sustainable futures and 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 meeting your your potential to have a good life for as long as you can. I mean, I'm I'm really passionate about creating health span rather than a lifespan. Obviously, from my mother's experience, I think if we can in, live and enjoy our lives, but that takes money, and I think we need to think about that now. Surely it's your dad you should have sent in there instead of yourself as a second life <laughs> No, mentor. we have to think about this now. Now is the time to do it. So you're saying to people in their, say, in their 50s and onwards, what, what, what are you saying to them? I, I would say as soon as you can start having discussions about money, and, and your future sustainability have them. And and I think that we need to be socialising these conversations with our children now so so that they can start thinking about future planning. Not it's, that not, they, it's not just about money though, is it? No, absolutely not. It's about money. It's about purpose and contentment. It's about socialisation. It's about... And these, these, are, these are proven scientifically to create contentment through our lives. So we need to manage these aspects to ensure that we can enjoy our lives. Sonia Lennon, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting to you on the Insights Podcast. Thank you so much indeed for coming to the studio. Thanks, Sean. To hear more in this series, go to rte.ie forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.